I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, a previously unpublished conversation with Brandon P. Buck, PhD candidate in history and digital history fellow at George Mason University. In this conversation, we'll be discussing a formation of the conservative movement from the early half of the 20th century known as the Old Right. It was a movement opposed to the progressive economic reforms of the New Deal era. Additionally, and this will be the focus for most of our conversation, the old right was explicitly anti-war. We'll be discussing the old right's foreign policy, the accusations that its anti-war sentiments were driven by anti-Semitism and other bigotries, the old right's logic for opposing war and militarism, and much, much more. So, without any further ado, let's get right to it with Brandon P. Buck on the old right and the anti-war movement. Welcome to Parallax Views. Brandon P. Buck, PhD candidate in history and digital history fellow, at George Mason University and author of the recent Responsible Statecraft piece, No Putin Apologia and Certainly Not New, The Old American Right on War. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you for having me. So, Brandon, maybe you could tell my listeners a little bit about your background and um, your sort of perspective on matters of uh, politics, domestic and uh, foreign policy. 
Well, as you said in the intro, I am a PhD candidate at uh, George Mason University, currently researching uh, the domestic politics of U.S. foreign policy uh, from the sort of late interwar period until the fall of the Soviet Union, particularly interested in uh, right-wing opposition to U.S. foreign policy sort of during that period. Um, I've uh, done a little bit of writing on uh, foreign policy and some national security uh, from a, a historical perspective. Yeah, I'm a um, military veteran. I served in the Army from uh, 01 to 04, and I was, I was also a member of the intelligence community for about six years, so I have a little bit of experience in these matters on the inside. And, you know, somewhere along the way, I, <clears throat> I began to develop some uh, dissident perspectives on uh, U.S. foreign policy, uh, just as a, as a from, some, from experience, you know, sort of seeing it from the inside. And then in my writing, you know, I've become interested in, in the topic of foreign policy dissent, you know, sort of living in a time in which the old consensus is falling apart and it's falling apart from both the sort of left and the right. And, you know, doing some of my initial research, it sort of came to, I came to the conclusion that no one really did much uh, research into, you know, right-wing critiques of foreign policy after about like 1954. And my, I was just curious, like what happens to this, uh, to this line of thinking? And so that's how I've sort of got started uh, in this sort of academic journey. Two things on that with regards to the uh, dissertation work you're doing concerned with uh, conservative and libertarian critiques of U.S. intervention interventionism and uh, liberal internationalism. It reminds me of, um, you know, Gore Vidal, who was a, a great anti-imperialist, in my view, a very big influence on me. But if you would if you would ever ask him what his views were. Uh, or, or what his politics were, he would say, I'm a man of the old right. People don't realize that, uh, it, which is very interesting. We'll get into what the old right was. But uh, first, it's interesting, since you said you were inside the sort of system for a bit, you know, I guess you've been, as, as my colleague Kelly Vlahos calls it, inside the belly of the beast. Uh, you've been inside the DC blob. Uh, are you open to talking about why you became maybe a little bit disillusioned or, or became a dissident? Well, uh, you know, I was, uh, I, I sort of grew up as a, as a sort of hardcore kind of liberal hawk, uh, you know, I'm a sort of third generation national security kind of guy. And so this is just sort of the life, sort of life path uh, that was sort of there. And I, I grew up in Northern Virginia. And then, so I was, I was 18 on 9-11. I was in basic training. And so this is, this is just sort of, this is the thing that, you know, you, you had to do, you you were 18 years old. You're not really sort of thinking too much about the long-term ramifications nor was I too privy to the history of, you know, the United States and, and that kind of region. And so, you know, I did, uh, you know, I, I did my first tour there, uh, 04 to 05. Thankfully, I didn't see, I didn't see too much action. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the Iraq war was, was getting started. And I was one of these kind of liberal hawks who, you know, thought that the Iraq war was, was dumb and, uh, you know, doomed to fail, but at the same time, believed very strongly in the war on terror generally, uh, the war in Afghanistan in particularly, and the kind of liberal internationalist uh, mission that was kind of grafted onto the war on terror. But really, it was the election of uh, President Obama and the expansion of, of the wars on terror to Libya and Syria and then Yemen, the expansion of it in Somalia that, you know, I really started to just kind of turn against this thing because it, you know, it, uh, it, you know, became apparent to me that it was never going to end and that the, the logic of um, making the world in, in our image in the name of fighting terrorism is, is a recipe for um, 
perpetual war for perpetual peace, as it's once been said. So uh, that was also that the was, name of a Gore Vidal book. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and also just sort of seeing just uh, the incompetence, this sort of uh, the kind of daily, the kind of daily backbiting, this what's sometimes called empire building in government service, where people are more concerned about building up their own particular offices and sort of serving any kind of larger mission. So like the sheen of the empire, if you will, really kind of got taken off uh, by the end of my uh, government career. So decided to, to pick up and leave. I, I like that you mentioned that uh, line, perpetual war for perpetual peace. People uh, often don't realize that comes from the uh, old, um, I would say he was more on the left, but uh, the, the old progressive historian, Charles Beard. Um, but we're going to be talking about, I guess, what's known as the old right, which is a topic that I think the only other person that has really covered it is um, the late Justin Raimondo of antiwar.com. I believe he wrote some pieces for antiwar, but he had a whole book called Reclaiming the American Right, The Lost Legacy of the conservative movement. Uh, what, what's the sort of history of the old right? What was it? So, you know, the old right was a sort of loose confederation of what you might call negative rights or uh, laissez-faire liberals, and then a sort of smattering of more traditionalist conservatives, the kind of people who looked at horror at the growth of the sort of mass state that occurred in the sort of 20s and 30s. And so really they are kind of the sort of negative space around kind of either progressive liberalism or the sort of New Deal liberalism, which comes out of the sort of 1930s. Yeah, real um, quick, I, I wanted to note here. So to, to give an idea of here, um, when we say the old right, it does actually encompass a little bit more than just foreign policy. So oh, yeah. you have people like Garrett Garrett, who were mm -hmm. extremely critical of the New Deal, and he would have been part of the old right. So there's a whole segment of the old right that is very critical of uh, the New Deal policies of FDR. And then there's this uh, side of the, the old right that is also critical of uh, US foreign policy and interventionism. So it, it's kind of a broad movement. Yeah, and those two are firmly intertwined. I mean, the sort of libertarian arguments against fiat currency, against uh, government control of, 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 of uh, fund of money, uh, inflation, uh, inflationary spending, the sort of rationalization of the state through you know, a technocracy, um, these things go hand in hand with their arguments against what you might call, you know, liberal modernity or the sort of post-progressive uh, political economy, because they believe that those things in turn make it easier for states to engage in, in mass conflict. Um, so it's not an accident that the, the old right, uh, their non-interventionism comes out of also a opposition to the New Deal. Um, um, a number of the old right figures were all, not all, but a lot of them or just sort of disenfranchised New Deal liberals who, after the first term of FDR, decided to sort of, you know, move against the administration because they believed that it was taking the, the American economy in a fundamentally un-American direction. So figures like Garrett Garrett, who at one point was a supporter of the New Deal, John T. Flynn was actually a, kind of a, a liberal who, who uh, again, did the same thing. The, the chairman of the America First Committee, uh, General Robert E. Wood, was also a New Dealer. Clarence Mannon, who would come to fame as the political fixture that brought us Barry Goldwater, he actually never ended his Democratic affiliation. He, too, was also a member of the New Deal coalition early on. So, you know, the, um, the old rights uh, opposition to, you know, progressive economic policy is certainly hand in hand with their opposition towards interventionism. So... It's interesting. I think when uh, people like myself that, that lean on the left 
uh, or, or just people in general that are interested in history hear about what you're talking about, the old right, they're thinking, you, you had mentioned the America First uh, movement. They're thinking, oh, these were the people that were just these isolationists and, and uh, you know, crypto brown shirts uh, that, that, that liked Hitler. How do you respond to the people that make that accusation about this old right movement that you're talking about? Yeah, so there are certainly strains of anti-Semitism which ran through the old right. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to sort of minimize those views or, or their sort of place, but they were not the main thrust of their worldview. I think I really think that the, the worldview of the old right has its origins within the founding of the um, Republican Party itself. People have to remember that the, the GOP is made up of, of spare parts, basically people who were Whigs who have their origins in the Federalists who stood for uh, a kind of nationalized sort of economy and then sort of Jeffersonian leftovers from say the free soilers. And then there's some sprinkling of sort of nativists there from the sort of know nothings. So the Republican party has been a bit schizophrenic in its political ideology since its inception. And these rifts were sort of kept together in the wake of their, of their victory in the civil war and the suppression of the democratic party uh, through reconstruction. But particularly after uh, the Spanish American war, some of those fissures started to sort of come apart. Uh, one of them uh, was, of course, intervention, particularly in the Philippines. That was very unpopular. People sort of sort of forget that. And also the, um, the position on the tariff. Uh, the old right, despite being sort of Jeffersonian in their temperament, was more sort of pro-tariff. But once northern industry is able to, to compete internationally, sort of northern Republicans decide to start moving away uh, uh, from sort of tariff policies. So... People, people who hyper-focus on the elements of anti-Semitism within some segments of the right seem to forget that there's a, lo a long history here of Americans uh, and their view of their role in the world. And it wasn't merely a reaction um, to, this, to the sort of forces in Europe. And another thing, you know, people forget that Americans fought a war before World War II. It was World War I, then known as the Great War. And a lot of Americans died in that war, and a lot, and a lot of Americans, particularly those in the, in the Midwest, took a stance that they didn't want to fight another one. Um, and there was a lot of, not to interrupt you, but there was a lot of um, anger after World War One, saying, hey, there were these people that, that, that were merchants of death in a way that, that there were people that profited from oh, World War One, and there were attempts to investigate that and a big uproar from the citizenry. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up the merchants of death, because that book is... Um, you know, we typically think of uh, of anti-war activism as being intrinsically on the left or exclusively on the left, because we typically project onto the past the sort of political paradigms of the post-Vietnam era. But once upon a time, it was not uncommon for the left and the right to cooperate on their opposition to war, and, and one of those is, is through publishing. Uh, Merchants of Death uh, had had um, had two authors. One of them, Frank Hannigan, was firmly a man of the right. He would go on to join the America First Committee. He was actually one of the co-founders of Human Events, which when it started was a non-interventionist magazine, but quickly after World War II converted into interventionism. And then the other was um, F.C. Engelbrecht, who was a Christian socialist and uh, was sort of very active on the left. So at the time, it was not uncommon for left and right to, to sort of cooperate on sort of on these issues. So, you know, again, um, amplifying some of the more nefarious people like in the American Boone or the Silver Shirts or sort of Father Coughlin's followers, does it sort of disservice to the, to the, the, the varying levels of, or sorry, the varying types of sort of dissents that went on before U.S. entry into the war? I'm, you know, the, the America First Committee 
was ran itself on a franchise model. So uh, at the top, they sort of did their best to keep more of these, you know, um, disreputable people out of their ranks, but they could not do it at, at, at every particular faction. And I think much of the charges of anti-Semitism comes from Charles Lindbergh's sort of rather infamous speech on September 11th, 2001, in which he said that the United States was being dragged into uh, this this new war through this, a, a cabal of sort of bankers, you know, Eastern. I'm Anglo- confused. You said September 11th, 2001. Did I really? Sorry. That that date is implanted in my mind. <laughs> September 11th, 1941. Uh, the other date, which will live in infamy. Um, so in which Charles Lindbergh uh, said that, that, that America was being dragged into the war by a cabal of sort of Eastern bankers, Anglophiles and Jews. And of course, the speech just at one absolute, uh, you know, like wildfire, and it was sort of used against uh, the America First Committee, as one might imagine. So, you know, his speech was not exactly warmly received by everyone at the AFC, but this sort of caused rifts. But this event has really sort of uh, taken over the narrative of, of the America First Committee. So, now it's really interesting to me. Uh, you know, one of the figures uh, that I find interesting on the right, even though I disagree with him on a million and one things, is uh, Pat Buchanan, mm-hmm. uh, because people people will say, uh, you know, Pat Buchanan was such a big supporter of the Cold War. Why didn't he support uh, the war on terror? And I said, well, to me, it makes total sense, uh, because for Buchanan, uh, the threat of international communism represents uh, an existential threat, I guess, for him to Christian civilization. But really, his politics overall has always been with um, an older iteration of the right that is basically that is basically of the opinion that, you know, uh, and this is oversimplifying, but we can be friends with everyone. We don't have to go to war. We can do diplomacy. Uh, and to him, after the Soviet Union's gone, uh, you go back to that older form of the right that was um, not really interested in, in this uh, liberal internationalism or interventionism. Um, so it seems like the Cold War led to a shift where the old right went out of favor. Yeah, well, you know, Pepe Cannon is one of those interesting characters because he was, you know, generationally, he was, you know, a sort of new right guy. He was born into the, into the world that the Cold War made. So in some sense, you know, it's almost like he can't think his way out of it. But yet, yes, uh, as the Soviet Union collapses, uh, the right wing... Um, the sort of right-wing consensus on American foreign policy sort of breaks up. Uh, one of the things that I've been looking at is uh, congressional voting on U.S. sort of foreign policy issues. And what we think of as, as the sort of typical right-wing position on U.S. foreign policy really only existed during the Reagan era. Uh, before that, you had vestiges of the old right who, who opposed various things like foreign aid, uh, opposed some elements of America's diplomatic policy, uh, and they persisted until really the early 70s. Uh, and then after the Reagan era is when folks like Pat Buchanan realized, okay, the war is over, we can go home now. But the thing is, is Pat Buchanan was opposing the war or, or was opposing communism because of communism. I think really, if you look at the aims of the American government during the Cold War, you, you can make the argument that their primary motive was not the elimination of communism, rather it was the expansion of, of liberal internationalism. Uh, and so that's why figures like Pat Buchanan can sort of turn against the quote unquote American empire in the wake of the, of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I, I guess in bringing up Buchanan's sort of view, which I, I do think there's a consistency there, I, I probably am making it sound as if the old right 
died because of uh, the, the perceived threat of international communism. But that may not necessarily be true. I think, uh, you know, uh, World War II and um, its aftermath may have also played a part. Uh, but maybe you could explain what leads to the sort of uh, recession of the old right. So the the sort of scholarly consensus is that ooh, between sort of like 54 and 56, the old right effectively dies. Um, so the first is the sort of uh, defeat of, of Howard, um, I'm sorry, of uh, of Taft uh, for the um, Republican nomination in 52. Uh, he, he later dies of cancer in 53. Uh, and then right around that same time, the last of the true right-wing anti-militarists sort of leaves Congress. So Howard Buffett's probably the sort of biggest name. He's actually the father of uh, Warren Buffett. Uh, he leaves Congress in 1952. And so after that, there's really not much of a right-wing opposition to sort of militarism as, as we might define it broadly. Uh, and then in 54, you have uh, National Review and they sort of read out of the movement. Certain folks, certain folks exile themselves like Murray Rothbart. So this is usually well, where- William story- F. Buckley basically uh, yeah. almost remolds the conservative movement. Yeah, it, he, you know, he- put himself he was in a position to sort of call balls and strikes and sort of decide who was to, who was outside of the consensus and sort of who wasn't um you'd also have to remember that in the post-war era uh sort of mccarthyism notwithstanding the sort of new deal left is still very much the sort of hegemonic force in in american politics so, so the old right is being crushed between uh their opponents on the left and their smaller but growing opponents on the sort of new right at this time but even despite all these moves, uh, the American right doesn't quite come on board fully with the way that the Cold War is being prosecuted. So from about 55 until 65, about 25 or 30 percent, depending upon how you count it, of the Republican Party remains off platform when it comes to things like foreign aid and certain diplomatic uh, initiatives like um, the Eisenhower Doctrine, which sought to implement American power in the Middle East in the wake of the collapse of the British and, and French empires, uh, Eisenhower faced a bit of a revolt on the right over these issues. But, you know, because the Republican Party was the sort of minor party and because these folks were a subset of a subset, uh, they didn't really have the votes to sort of push anything through. It's really not until 1964 that the Barry Goldwater disaster really sort of sinks uh, the old mid- Midwestern right. Um, it's between 62 and 64, the sort of political center of gravity of the right wing of the Republican Party shifts from the Midwest to the South. And it also begins to sort of shift in terms of its generation. So Barry Goldwater is a bit of an older, greatest generation guy. He fought in World War II, as did the other folks who, who were sort of in his cohort. So they begin to sort of act as the bridge between sort of like Taft and Reagan. And one of the ways in which they do that is they adopt a sort of triumphalist narrative of the Second World War. Um, whereas the old right would have viewed the war as a tragedy, something that America was sort of dragged into, the new right, particularly starting with Barry Goldwater, viewed it as the sort of ultimate triumph of American freedom. So it's it's really sort of 64 that their political power is just donezo, uh, it's defeated. And then in 1975, the last of, of the old right, a man by the name of H.R. Gross, you can sort of think of him as a kind of um, proto-Ron Paul. He retires. And then after that, <clears throat> they are effectively out of government. And at that point, it's really the, the libertarian think tanks and a handful of other sort of paleoconservative magazines that carry these ideas forward through the 
through to uh, 1992 and then the present. Now, in your article for Responsible Statecraft, uh, you talk about this uh, retired Republican congressman from Kentucky uh, by the name of Eugene, I believe it's Seiler. Could you uh, talk about him? He, he attempted a political comeback uh, running for an open Senate seat in spring of 1968, and his platform was explicitly anti-war. Yeah, so Eugene Seiler entered Congress in 1955 in the House of Representatives, and he served uh, Kentucky's, I think it was the, either the fifth or the eighth, maybe it was both of their congressional districts until 1965 when he left. Um, Seiler has the distinction of being the only individual from the House of Representatives to oppose, to oppose the Gulf of uh, Tonkin resolution. Uh, he, he paired nay um, on the resolution. There were two senators as, who also opposed it as well, but uh, Seiler was the only one in the House. Not only that, he also opposed the uh, Gulf of Tonkin's two legislative precursors, one which would have granted executive authority to defend the island of, uh, of Taiwan and also <clears throat> the, um, uh, the Eisenhower Doctrine, which uh, ceded um, presidential power to, to the executive to, uh, impo- to impart force in, into the sort of Middle East. So he, so he leaves Congress uh, in 65, and then he tries to mount a comeback in 1968, and you know, uh, spoiler alert, he fails. Uh, he fails um, because the Republican Party has moved too far beyond his particular brand of anti-war activism. Uh, during the campaign, he opposed the war not merely on sort of pragmatic grounds, but on constitutional grounds and moral grounds. Um, but by the late 60s, early 70s, the Republican Party found a way to oppose the war through the, through the lens of partisanship by blaming all of the war's failings on the Johnson administration and not on the logics which helped bring about the conflict to sort of begin with. So I see sort of Siler's defeat as sort of emblematic of the failure of more substantive criticisms of, of Vietnam and U.S. foreign policy generally from making their way sort of into politics. Could you talk about Seiler and uh, the the Gulf of Tonkin and the 1964 Gulf of Tonkin resolution? Yeah, so Seiler, uh, he like I said, he was the only individual to oppose it in the House, and he opposed it on the sort of logic. It's kind of, it's kind of like folksy sort of logic, where he says that uh, I forget the the quote, but he says, "If I should send my son into the street and, and he should get stung by a stone that's leveled from a house, I should not then go send his bigger brother in after him." Basically, there's this notion that that uh, you know America has put itself into this position in Vietnam, and the wise course of action is not to sort of double down. Um, Seiler uh, was was vocal against the war in the past. This wasn't his first uh, his first rodeo with uh, on the war in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, prior, he had given a speech against the war in which he said that you know Vietnam does not constitute a threat to American security. It's you know, oh so th- many thousand miles away and that America's security situation has not changed at the end of World War II. The oceans still matter and distance still matters and that it's best that the United States should just tend to its own garden. So that, that's a good segue point. I wanted to get into, so a lot of people know about, oh, anti-war. There are so many anti-war left-wingers. There was an anti-war left during Vietnam and Iraq. And I, I would count myself amongst that. But it, it's interesting when you talk about this anti-war right, a, a lot of people aren't aware of it. And 
I guess I want to delve into the differences between the anti-war left and the anti-war right. And sometimes I think the anti-war left isn't as stable or or coherent or as as big as people think. Um, But what do you think are the differences between maybe left opponents of militarism and these sort of old right uh, adjacent opponents of militarism and war? Yeah, so, you know, the old right really had sort of two ideological components. One uh, is a kind of laissez-faire liberalism, this belief in the sovereignty of the individual. And the other is a sort of more, which you might call sort of traditionalist vision of, of American society. And the more sort of libertarian leaning faction believed that war, particularly mass war, was immeasurably harmful to, to the individual. They were particularly uh, harsh opponents of the draft on the eve of World War II and remained uh, opponents to the draft in, throughout the, the early Cold War period. Um, so amongst libertarian folks, it's this notion that war is destructive to the individual. For the more sort of traditionalist faction, which of which I would sort of count Siler, uh, and, and other folks sort of in his in his uh, circle, they believe that war was destructive to, to traditional American society or to societies in general, that, you know, war breaks up families. War drafts men, it drafts, you know, you, you know sons, it upsets local economies, it empowers a federal government at the expense of local governments, local institutions, uh, and it's ultimately sort of destructive with, with what you might call as kind of conservative of uh, lifestyle, um, which, you know, for us now, like we, we think of conservatism as thoroughly inter- intertwined with sort of militarism. But you gotta remember, conservatism changes like anything else. And at this time, these folks were looking at the world at the end of sort of nation state building projects in both Europe and the United States. And also as governments on both sides of the pond were taking up larger, uh, larger portions of sort of economic planning uh, and other sort of avenues of sort of state state power. So they were looking at this in absolute horror, that society was becoming a mass of people, not a collection of sort of autonomous or semi-autonomous localities and families. So that is that is the basis of sort of from which they would oppose war. Do you think there's also an element, and I, I, I don't want to like paint a, a stereotypical or caricature picture, but is there also an element of the sort of anti-war right historically that maybe comes from a viewpoint of, um, you know, I, I'm, I keep getting this picture in my head of the don't tread on me flag with the snake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, these countries aren't going to tread on me. They're not bothering me. What do I care? You know, it's none of our business. Um, is, is that also maybe a, a driving factor in some ways? Yeah, so you know the old right had, the old right had kind of a schizophrenic logic, uh, or like sort of worldview, and they were mostly sort of Jeffersonians who believed in natural rights given by God, but yet at the same time they also embraced a kind of particularism. Uh, you know, they believe that rights, or they believe that societies that value liberty ultimately had to have cultures that value liberty. So it's not in the ability of the government to go into another place and create sort of, and drop what Hillary Clinton might've called um, government in a box. Like government is not a box. It's not a government, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a corporate, um, you know, corporate product nor, nor government policy that these things have to grow organically over time uh, and sort of through history. 
so that's sort of one avenue. And also there, there's another which sort of demands to be to be spoken about, and you know, that is race, uh, particularly during the early, so uh, uh, a lot of opposition to American involvement in the Philippines had to do with fear of, of uh, migration and labor competition coming from, um, from the Filipino colonies. Um, some, of those, some of those racial elements were sort of suppressed in American discourse because of the 1924 Immigration Act, which effectively sort of closed the door, but those come, uh, come back uh, as a result of, of, of the 1964 sort of immigration reforms that once again, bring immigration back into the fold in terms of American interventionism. And that's where you get some things like the, like the sort of so-called white replacement theory, this notion that the federal government is intentionally destabilizing regions throughout the world for the purposes of creating uh, migrant and labor flows. So that, that's another piece uh, of, of, of the puzzle as well, particularly when it comes to things like foreign aid, there are, you know, some sort of some opposition to foreign aid in the mid sixties that is sort of racially based, uh, as well. Now, of course you wrote, uh, your article for, um, responsible statecraft. Um, and I just want to give a shout out to Kelly Vlahos. She's doing really great work there. Um, and that's part of the Quincy Institute and Quincy, I would say is a transpartisan organizations. So you have people from the left, progressives, uh, libertarians, and conservatives. Uh, but I do think, maybe you'll disagree with me, I think we can work together. Um, despite, I, I think, you know, that's the history of politics is you, you build coalitions with people you don't always agree with on all the issues. I think in some ways, the, the elements of the anti-war left and the anti-war right uh, oppose war for different reasons. Uh, would you agree with that assessment? I, I think that, you know, uh, for me, I don't like war because, I, you know, I, I think cosmopolitanism is a good thing, but I don't think that war actually leads to a more cosmopolitan or, or globally cooperative society. I don't think that's the right concern. You know, when I talk to ANCAPs, they're just like, well, uh, I just don't want war because don't tread on me and, you know, I, it's none of our business. So do you think there are sort of key differences in how the anti-war left and the anti-war right um, look at things? Well, yeah, I mean, I I'm actually, not even saying that as a criticism necessarily. No, no, just no, saying, no. Yeah. No, so I'm of the opinion that right now the the sort of the ideological landscape of um, political opposition to U.S. foreign policy is the open is the most open it's been since the mid um, interwar period, since about sort of like 1935. And I'm actually of the opinion that that, that the sort of two sides are far more in common than they might think. I think they both are critiquing a kind of corporatist animal this marriage of, of uh, capital and state, which is sort of, which is you know, imposing its will upon the outside world, often to the sort of detriment, um, of course, of people, you know, people in those countries, but also of the sort of median American as well. The only, the, the only real difference is, is like, who is your, who is your primary boogeyman, right? Is it, is it capital or is it, or is it the state? I think that's chiefly the sort of big difference sort of between these two. And again, this goes back to the sort of overlaps that, you know, occurred in the 1930s where people on the left and the right both had sort of a jaundiced view of, you know, war profiteers or, you know, or the sort of contracting system. And these things have reiterated themselves. And I, and I, 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 don't, I really don't see that much of a sort of difference between the two. The only difference is that what do you see as the sort of seed event? Um, you know, the left. Uh, left-wing opposition, you mentioned Charles Beard earlier, really has its origins uh, in Charles Beard. But, you know, Charles Beard would rub shoulders with uh, with the American right, you know, throughout the 1930s. 
he wasn't a member of the America First Committee, but the America First Committee had some of his books on their reading list. Uh, he was sort of friends with some other sort of revisionist historians at, at the time. So, you know, I see the current ideological landscape as far more like that of 1935 than, say, 1968, where you had fundamental differences between the right and the left, even amongst sort of libertarians who were sort of more radical. Um, unlike then, I don't see President Biden's autocracies versus democracies paradigm as having the same kind of narrative weight that communism did during the height of the Cold War or fascism did in the sort of 1930s. Uh, I, I see now the two sides as having far more in common than they do, than they do uh, uh, apart. Would you be able to maybe elaborate on that? Like, what do you, what do you see as like some of the the, the points where common interests uh, come into play for uh, opponents of militarism on the left and the right? Like any well, concrete examples? Well, I mean, just just the sort of nature of you know you know the so-called military-industrial complex, the 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 the, the bureaucratic incentives to to um, initiate conflict or sustain conflict. You know, a typical sort of uh, progressive or left-wing critique would say, oh, well, the impetus for this is capital, right? It is, it is the corporations that, that have a moneyed interest to sort of keep these things going alive. A more right-wing or libertarian critique would say, well, no, this is really, um, this, is, this is a political interest. These are political actors who have political motives, they aren't necessarily motivated by capital. Uh, and, you know, therefore, they want to sort of to do X to, to maintain a war or start another war. Well, the end result is the same as the wars happen. It's just what is the method of sort of what is what is the method of critique? I see that the critique is both arriving at the, at the same conclusion, just through sort of different math. Ultimately, it, it is a marriage of corporations and in, in, in states, which are sort of keeping these things going. Just really briefly, and I, I know this isn't mentioned in the article, but one thing I've been thinking about recently where there may be um, fissures between elements of uh, the anti-war left and right is um, on this topic of, of realism. Uh, does realism factor into any of your analysis of the American right? Yeah, I mean, they they certainly were, you know, of the sort of realist school by and large. I mean, they they by no means uh, were pacifists, you know, the, the old right. They certainly had a hegemonic view of America's relationship with the sort of Western hemisphere, um, particularly places like Cuba. Um, this carries forth even throughout the Cold War. So even a guy like Seiler, who was opposed to the war in Vietnam, often opposed it through the lens of, of Cuba. Uh, like it didn't make any sense to them that we were spending all this blood and treasure fighting communism in Southeast Asia when there was a communist state 80 miles off the coast of Florida. So they are by no means perfect from the perspective of a pacifist or someone who opposes uh, American interventionism sort of all the way down. Um, if one had to pick a label for them, it would be that of realism, uh, because they do not believe that it is that the American state or any state for that matter has the capacity to remold states in their own image as, as, as a kind of liberal internationalist sort of model. So then at the beginning of your article, you talk about, um, you know, the, the media narrative around the American rights opposition to deeper U.S. involvement in the Ukrainian crisis. And of course, uh, I think everyone has noticed uh, Tucker Carlson on Fox News being very against, uh, you know, U.S. and U.S. deeper involvement in the Ukraine crisis. Uh, there's people that are now using this to say 
Uh, anyone, everyone on the right is just in the pocket of Putin. Um, you know, I've seen those Lincoln Project videos uh, yeah. where they're showing, you know, uh, Tucker Carlson and everyone on the right is being, um, you know, communists, which is weird because I don't think these people like the USSR um, <laughs> or, or that they're just like uh, gullible to Russian disinformation. So I, I want you to be able to respond to that. And then we'll get to the other big uh, criticism, which I, I've often been accused of and, and uh, have been annoyed by, which is isolationism. But first, let's talk about this this narrative that has arisen about, uh, oh, everyone is like pro, all these people that oppose the war on the right are pro-Putin. Uh, this is just susceptibility to Russian disinformation, uh, et cetera. Yeah. Is it true that there are people on the American right who, who have a fond view of Putin? Yes. Uh, is it true that there are people out there on the American right who view Putin as a kind of lesser of two evils, you know, but him or like this sort of American empire. Yes. Well, there, there uh, is this emergent element of the right that, that is interesting. And I guess, sure. um, a post-liberal post-liberal politics, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, those people exist. Uh, is that indicative of the whole? No. Uh, is the presence of those politics, uh, is that not indicative of something? I think it is. I mean, you know, why is it that post-liberal politics has such sway right now? And these are questions which no one really wants to ask because the the sort of protectors of the consensus do not want to reckon with the fact that much of the liberal establishment has got us to this position. It's got us to, to this position where we've been at war for 20 years and have spent trillions of dollars. And we're now... <laughs> We're now closer to, to nuclear war than we've been since since uh, since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So yes, those, those those actors certainly exist, and they certainly do have these kinds of opinions. But I'm not of the opinion that they are um, indicative of the whole. And also, it it, it reveals a, a certain uh, you know lack of historical understanding. I mean, people have been opposed to NATO expansion before Putin even came to power. Uh, you know, back in the mid '90s, when this was being sort of bandied about, you did have uh, a kind of horseshoe of opposition, much like now. I mean, you had the thought, architect of uh, containment policy, yes. uh, George Kennan. Kennan. Yeah. I, I even think one of the—I uh, would say he was very involved in the early days of the neocons. Paul Nitsa was against mm-hmm. NATO expansion. All the, there were a bunch yeah. of people. Yep, and there were uh, progressive Democrats, such as they were in the 90s, and there were elements of the sort of libertarian and more traditionalist conservative right uh, in in the Republican Party who opposed this long before Putin sort of came to power. So, you know, debates about foreign policy do this and have done this sort of, you know, throughout the the modern era is you you pick the the most extreme people on your political opponents, you amplify their, their, their connections, however tenuous to your opponent, and then you use them as a sort of radioactive club to sort of discipline everyone else. And just think about McCarthyism, right? This is what the this is what the right did to the left at that time. They found yes, there were communists within the State Department uh, throughout the 1930s and into the early 40s. So, did uh, McCarthy and his followers use that to their own political advantage? Of course, they did. Um, you know, these are these are human failings, and you know they're never really going to go away. But I think we as smart consumers of, of politics and media. Can, can stop and, and ask ourselves, you know, what are the motives of the accusations being made? How true are they? And even if they are true, people with dissonant opinions, even ugly dissonant opinions, can, can occasionally stumble into something. Um, and that doesn't mean that we should completely dismiss everything they say. 
Yeah, I actually want to stick on that for one second if we can, because um, do you think maybe part of the reason um, the old right uh, sort of ended up forgotten, except by people like maybe uh, the late Justin Raimondo was, uh, you had mentioned the paleocons, right? And you had paleocons like, um, you know, I think there's some of them still alive, people like Paul Gottfried, who I think to this day uh, were really opposed to the Civil Rights Act. Uh, yeah. Do you think that one of the reasons that the old right is maybe forgotten now is because on some social issues uh, that they were seen as, as being so wrong that all the other issues sort of fell by the wayside, the foreign policy stuff uh, fell by the wayside and isn't really remembered at all? Yeah, I think that's a that, that's an excellent observation that sort of demands repeating, especially after 64, when the Civil Rights Act becomes a kind of second American revolution. Everyone sort of opposed to that uh, is now sort of radioactive and has to be sort of like uh, read out of the history. And, you know, for good reason, uh, you know, they you know, the the old right believed in negative rights, but yet at the same time, they did not necessarily have the wherewithal to ensure the protection of those negative rights. And they, they either, um, you know, those that were still around by 1964, most of them sort of opposed the 1964 Civil Rights Act. They did support, you know, kind of onesies and twosies earlier civil rights uh, legislation that was more based on sort of voting rights and some sort of uh, other kind of like negative rights guarantees. But yes, by 64, uh, once, once race really enters, into the into the sort of American discussion, um, you know, those that those that were left were basically, you know, to to use the old uh, to use the old cliche on, on the wrong side of history. But you're right; something is sort of lost. I, I'm I'm doing research into uh, a, a man named Dan Smoot, who was uh, a kind of I don't think he was actually like a like a uh, a John Bircher, but he was sort of John Bircher adjacent. To use the parlance of our times. Uh, he was a conspiracy theorist. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to say. Um, and he was also, by, even by the standards of the day, a bigot. And he opposed to the sort of Civil Rights uh, Act of 64. But he was also an early opponent of the Vietnam War. He also recognized that the U.S. government was slaughtering black and, uh, black and brown people overseas. Uh, he, reali- he realized that the U.S. government was uh, complicit in you know, its support for right-wing authoritarian regimes like that of Franco. So even even if his views here at home on race were illiberal and sort of, you know, and um, not keeping with the sort of progress of society, he also had other views, which, you know, left left this uh, left wingers and other people who oppose American intervention might support or actually think sort of worthy of of engaging with. So, yes, something was lost uh, in, in the mid 60s when when liberalism took a more. Uh, a more robust uh, stance on, on, on civil rights. Let's talk about this accusation of uh, the, the accusation of isolationism, because it's interesting when this Ukraine crisis broke out, you know, it wasn't like there was uniform opinion. You know, there were people at Quincy, like, for instance, Anatole Levin, that were actually supportive of sanctions. There are other people like people at antiwar.com. Some people I know there are very against sanctions. Uh, there are some people that are for sending weapons, um, but they want it to be done a certain way and they want to make sure the weapons don't get in that. They, they're worried about the logistics. There's some people that don't want to send weapons. There's some people that uh, believe we, we, we should uh, have no fly zones. There's other people that don't. So it's not, I feel like with this Ukraine crisis, it, it, even within the sort of pro restraint camp, there's a lot of diversity of thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, 
really been the case, you know, since the interwar period. And this is one of the problems why uh, non-interventionists can't really get their stuff together because they there often is not uh, a, a a positive program uh, for America in the world. It's usually based on you know, a sort of opposing the excesses, sort of 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 the moment. And you know, it's it's pretty easy to you know, especially in sort of hindsight, to criticize American involvement in, in Afghanistan or Iraq. But it's a lot more difficult when uh, you have uh, a regional uh, power like you know Putin's Russia violating international norms and invading sovereign countries. This is a much more difficult hill to die on, and so it's going to be incredibly difficult to get some kind of restraint coalition together for for a, a uh, issue like this. I mean, we sort of saw this with uh, with the old right in in the uh, in the in the late um, late forties that a lot of them were opposed to the early Cold War and thought this was this this was a mistake, and then all of a sudden China falls. Uh, and that their their ideologies just can sort of not keep up uh, with the sort of current reality, and so tragically, there's probably some some elements of that here uh, uh, here um, here as well. Um, how that shakes out in the future, however, I think is certainly um, up for grabs. I think the you know the the lessons of how we got here will still matter significantly, despite the outcomes uh, of the war itself, and that is where I think people who value restraint are really going to sort of um, are really going to have to have their voices heard. So with regards to coalitions, um, you know, I, I've seen what people like Eikenberry and, and Duetney have said about the, the so-called Quincy coalition. It just shouldn't exist because why should the left and the right even uh, have coalitions? You know, we should just stick to our, I guess, tribes. And I, I don't think that's how politics ever worked, but I do see how, you know, Quincy is taking on a very difficult project because, um, you know, I'm someone when I end up uh, having a relative that turns on Tucker Carlson, I'm pretty grossed out by a lot of things that Tucker Carlson has to say. And then there's probably libertarians that listen to my show that are grossed out by my support of a lot of, um, you know, left leaning policies. So uh, how do you see, uh, you know, us working around a lot of these differences, especially when some of these differences get into like really uh, deeply explosive issues like um, race and whatnot. Um, how do we come together on foreign policy Oof, without and, 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 and without giving up our own principles on other matters? Oof, that is a that is a big question. I wish that I had a solid answer to it. This is something that people have been asking uh, since the '30s. I, I mentioned uh, Justin Romando. This has been a sort of project of his or project of his while he was still with us, and you know, of course. Murray Rothbard in the, in the, in the sort of late sixties, I'm afraid I really don't have any good answers for you. I, I, I think that, you know, if we're coming up on, on, on the midterms, I think if you are a person who typically sort of votes democratic and but you live in a solidly red district that has no chance at all of, um, <clears throat> of turning blue, maybe you should contemplate holding your nose and, and voting in the primaries of, of that particular Republican representative. Uh, these things are in flux and they can change, but it takes some human action to sort of do so. I know there are, there are, there are efforts out there um, that are you know, com- completely apolitical, like uh, uh, bring our home, uh, bring our troops home.us that is trying to put forth uh, defend the guard legislation throughout the United States. Uh, this would 
uh, allowed governors to reassert their control, their own primacy over their own state militias, which is the sort of National Guard. And to, in theory, to, to implement these policies throughout the country would make it more difficult for the United States government to initiate long-standing wars of, of uh, nation building and occupation. So I do think there are some elements sort of like around the margins uh, which sort of make it possible. But at least at, at, at the very least, be active within within your own political within your own political movements, within within your own political parties, just with with a recognition that at least there are people on, on the other side of the aisle who hold who hold opinions on these particular issues, which sort of mirror your own. Um, I'm afraid that that's the best I can do. I, I don't uh, if I had an answer to that, I, uh, I'd probably have written a book already. But so the, the last thing. Um... Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about the, the the coalitions we built, and you know, I've I've worked with people at Quincy and and Antiwar.com, and I I think we do have a shot with a lot of um our pro restraint views. I think that there's a, a hunger for that now, um, and I think there are still differences. I I think uh you know when I look at some of the ideas, say a John Mersheimer has about realism, you know, there's things that make me uncomfortable about that, but I I think we can come together. Um, at the same time, um, I guess, since a lot of my audience leans leftward, what would you say to those um, left-leaning listeners, not necessarily about um, having to work with the right, because there, there are certain people I will work with, there's certain, certain people I won't, everyone has their own lines, but what would you say to them about the, the rise of this sort of anti-war right and their um, growing significance within the political scene and discourse? Well, you know, it certainly has, um, you know, multiple origins. I, I, I think for the average conservative uh, who has sort of sensed in themselves a growing um, disdain for the foreign policy consensus, I think a lot of it has to do with the disparities uh, that have been born primarily of working and middle class communities from the interior of, of, of the country. Um, I, uh, some time ago, I wrote a piece uh, for antiwar.com about this from, from what I argue uh, that is the true impetus for uh, American populism. It is the fact that that over the past 20 years, it is your sort of, you know, your sort of median um, conservative voter, which has been, been more likely to enlist in the military and also more likely to therefore die. Um, and that this coupled with <clears throat> the financial crisis and the sort of opioid Epidemic, the sort of deindustrialization of, of Middle America has uh, brought these new um, these new right wing uh, dissidents to to the fore. Uh, and I think if we don't engage with this, then this could go in some really dark directions. Um, this could lead to a kind of lost cause mythology that could really radicalize the right in a fundamentally illiberal way. So. I think you mean in like what do you mean by illiberal? Like what are you thinking? Like fascistic. Right? Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, not I mean, like very I extreme racism, things like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, extreme racism or uh, like you know a kind of populism that is you know truly sort of anarchic French Revolution style. Uh, you know, I, I still consider myself fundamentally liberal. Uh, I don't want to see these things come to pass, but we need to reckon with the fact that politics comes comes from somewhere. Uh, and that just because some people take up some particularly ugly ways of expressing it, it does not necessarily mean that that comes from a, a place that is completely irrational and illogical. 
you know, because of the elimination of the draft in, in the early 1970s, coupled with the sort of neoliberal economic policies that have, you know, um, uh, preferenced offshoring and these sort of things, you know, we've we've done everything that we possibly can to create a Marshall cast in this country. Uh, I don't think it was a conspiracy, like some people might on my side of the aisle. However, uh, these things have happened. And the result of 20 years of war, coupled with the fact that, frankly, Americans have been lied to about much of this, um, uh, much of these conflicts, has created the conditions for this kind of uh, sort of populist sort of populist groundswell. And then you juxtapose that on top of the you know, so-called culture war, then you really do have a recipe for serious discontent. You know, it's, it's one thing to send someone else, you know, people to go off and fight. It's another thing to, to do that and then come home and denigrate their, you know, their, their social views or their religion or their, the way that, that they view sort of like American governance. You know, I, I sort of recall of, uh, who was that guy? Um, from the Lincoln Project that sort of made fun of Trump supporters, like like the can't even find Ukraine on a map. Uh, I don't know, you know but I've, I've had, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Kevin D. Williamson from the National uh-huh. Review. I've had yeah. him on my show and he famously did that whole thing where he just said, uh, oh, all these Trump supporters, they come from, uh, you know, these oxy addicted communities and they deserve yep. to die. Their communities deserve to die. So yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, the, the type. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and you know this is this is no way to govern a republic. Um, you cannot ask a segment of society to bear the burden of your of your wars for twenty years, and then you know send them off to fight. And then when 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 some of them come back disillusioned, you tell them to shut up. And that's basically what happened in the run up to the Ukrainian crisis. Like, does 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 every sort of median Trump voter have a deep understanding of sort of of um, you think you know, it even happened before, though? I mean, like people, I, yeah. what I mean by that is uh, people often reference the Iraq war and they say, oh, oh yeah. it, all these soldiers came back disillusioned, which I think is true. I think that happened with Afghanistan, too. I think you can go back even further, though. I mean, you look at Timothy McVeigh. That was the first Gulf War. He That's came the, back yep. disillusioned. Yep. It's, yep. it's been a long running theme. Yeah, it's been a long running theme. I think it's it's you know it certainly has its 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 local antecedents in the in the Tea Party movement with uh, Libya uh, and Syria because you know uh, some studies show that as many as one in ten Obama voters voted for Trump, and you know one of those methods of of discontent, myself included, was Libya and Syria. It's like you know we were told that we were going to conduct ourselves in, in a more restrained fashion. And then we chose to go to war, yes, albeit for uh, humanitarian reasons at the time uh, in, in Libya and then sort of like, again, in Syria. And, and so people are, you know, they're, they're, they're going to look to radical to uh, sort of radical means of, of rectifying that. And the best option at the time was Trump. Now, obviously, from the perspective of restraint, he's, he, he was a complete train wreck, um, didn't fall through on, on, on anything. But again, that's mixing cause and effect. Uh, we have to ask ourselves, why are people motivated to vote for someone like that? And the sort of stock liberal answer is because, well, half of America just must be racist. And, you know, certainly some segment of American uh, America is, by some definitions, you know, bigoted or racist. But it also comes from the fact that we have been pushing military service into smaller and smaller segments of, of society. And, you know, and the burden borne by those segments has become just too much to bear. Yeah. Last thing, I just wanted to comment on this because you mentioned uh, the people that fight the wars. And, you know, I I think, you know, the dirty secret in America is 
uh, the people that get recruited, you know, they're, they're either from the projects or, or they're from the boonies. I, listen, I'm from Pennsylvania originally. I had a okay. friend uh, from Greenville, which middle of nowhere, you know, and he got recruited because there was no other way out. You know, uh, I, there's a major general, uh, retired major general, Dennis Leach, wrote a book called Poor Kids and Patriots. He's in favor of bringing back the draft. Although oh, his, his, no, but his reasoning is one of those weird anti-war arguments, I think, where, yeah, right. uh, oh, if we brought back the draft, I bet they, they wouldn't like war as much because it does seem like, you know, it, it's not the, it's not the, it's not Robert Kagan's kids fighting these wars. Yes. It's my no. friends from Greenville, PA. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think it's, it's less about poor folks and, and, and rich folks. I think it's, it's rich folks and, and, and everybody else, because if, if you do look at the socioeconomic data, it, it really is the sort of middle and sort of working classes, but the people who aren't doing the dying, as you say, are, are the sort of sons of, of the sort of elite class in this country, uh, or sorry, the, the sons and daughters. Um, see, it's, it's my conservatism coming up. Um, <laughs> so so yeah, there there is this sort of large disparity, and I, I frankly I don't know how we sort of rectify that. Even if you sort of brought back the draft, I mean, come on, I mean the the super rich are going to find ways of, of 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 dodging that, or you know, all of a sudden finding out they have flat feet, or you know, or whatever. So you know, I'm I, I don't know how we sort of solve that problem, except by just the fact that we put political pressure to not expand our footprint any more than, than it already has. And, and I think for those of us who sort of value restraint, we are kind of in a sort of holding action right now. Where I, I think it would be really difficult, if not impossible, for the United States government to get us involved in another protracted war uh, in the Middle East or the sort of global South. Russia is kind of, is sort of its own thing. You know, there was a sort of violation of, of a borders at play there. That's almost a sort of different sort of set of kind of, um, of uh you know sort of oppositional logics there so yeah I, I think that's kind of where we're at if you're on the sort of dissonant space a kind of lull and but i'll take it uh that's that's an, that's an improvement well thank you again brandon p buck for coming on parallax views thank you well that does it for this edition of parallax views i hope you enjoyed my conversation with brandon p buck please be sure to keep up with his work on U.S. foreign policy, the old right, and a number of other topics. You can read him at places like Responsible Statecraft. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. 
new forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.